0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keenon, On, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is April the 13th, 2022. We usually do our interviews on Keenon On with people who have new books or perhaps old books out there. But sometimes you come across an article or one comes across an article that's so interesting and so pertinent that I thought I would invite the author on, even if they don't have a book out. Um, There's a wonderful piece a few days ago in the Financial Times magazine of all places, the Financial Times, which seems to become the, the, the moral fount of our culture. I don't quite know, understand why or how. Um, But it's a piece by my guest today, uh, Dan Brooks, uh, in the FT magazine, What We Need Now That Social Media Has Fully Weaponized Morality, a modest proposal to a generation that's learned to frame basically anything in moral terms. Uh, And I think I know that as well as anyone. Everyone comes on this show with some sort of moral shtick or other. They're always trying to make the world a better place. And they're always claiming that they know how to do it. Um, so I invited Dan Brooks on. He's based in a very unusual place, Missoula, Montana. Most of my guests end up uh, coming from uh, San Francisco or Brooklyn. Perhaps one of the reasons why he has an unusual take on things is because he doesn't live in either Brooklyn or San Francisco. Uh, Dan, you write this Piece, uh, as I said earlier, uh, what we need now that social media is fully weaponized morality. It's partly humorous, and you're partly a comic writer, but it's also an extremely serious piece. What were you trying to argue?
1: Well, the uh, the piece grew out of me complaining on Twitter, uh, which I think is a uh, unfortunately large source of my ideas. Um, but I was trying to get at like a feeling of frustration with the, the sort of creeping moralism in contemporary discourse. So the the way that non-moral questions are increasingly framed in moral terms. Um, and I'm, not, uh, I'm certainly not against morality. I think it's pretty important, um, but I think there are different kinds of morality and the one we've sort of collectively landed on is cynical. Yeah, word. it's
0: it's cynical. It's become, as you suggested, an offshoot of the marketing industry. To quote your piece uh, from April 8th, earlier this month, at the risk of sounding like someone who is about to disgrace his mega church, I'm an ethics guy. I think the question of how to do good is the most important subject a person can think about. And fitting our behavior to whatever answers we find is the fundamental project of life. But then you go on, Um, we've become obsessed though, with, with, with morality, um, and it's been taken over by the Nikes and the PepsiCo's of the world. What's happened, Dan? That's a good question.
1: Um, I think, uh, I think it comes from a fundamentally good place. I think a lot of us are concerned about the direction of the world as previous generations obviously were, but I think maybe in our lifetime, we become especially concerned and we're, We're right to be concerned, but I also think that that has been co-opted. I think that like the sort of institutional language of the United States and I think other Anglophone cultures has become this sort of making the world a better place type language that you described earlier. The uh, the idea that any decision can be framed in moral terms has really caught on. And I think people have learned to exploit that. You write
0: in the piece, uh, a whole generation has learned to talk that way, not just in corporate messaging, but in ostensibly casual speech, such that moralizing has become the prevalent mode on social media. Um, what, what, what is it about this basically thoughtful sentiment, this idea of morality that makes me want to throw my phone into the sea? Why is this so annoying, Dan? It's a really good
1: question. Um, And I think that uh, certainly there's an element of guilt there. Like, I don't, uh, I certainly don't feel like I've been perfectly ethical in my life. And so I think a portion of it is whenever someone starts to deliver moral instruction, I start to to feel like the sinner in church. But I think that there is also an element in which uh, you can expound on a lot of moral issues while not doing any good. Um, And I think for me, the frustration comes from like seeing a discourse that is very focused on morality and trying to reconcile that with my own perception that this is a less, uh, less ethical society than the one that I was born into. I think the United States particularly and probably most of the industrialized world is like worse, ethically speaking, in 2022 than it was in 1992.
0: You wrote a A very funny but also pertinent piece for the New York Mag, New York Times Magazine, um, a couple of years ago. How President Trump ruined political co- comedy. Could we also have a piece from you or somebody else about how America has ruined morality?
1: <laughs> I think uh, I think there's an argument to be made for that. Um, it's hard for me to compare the United States to to different countries, to the UK or. Uh, you know, China or, like, some country that I have, like, very little direct experience of. But I do think that there has been a, um, like, a, a broad breakdown in the American political system, in the American system of governance, so that, like, the possibility of legislating a more equitable society or a more ethical society seems increasingly remote. And I think that has contributed to this, like, turn in social media toward just constant, incessant moralizing. Um, I think that's an outlet for people who feel that like, they can't change the world through political means or through other means.
0: The really nightmarish thing, though, that seems to be happening is that we're confusing citizenship and consumption. We've had lots of shows on this. I also quote this guy, John Alexander. He was on the show a few months ago, actually a few weeks ago. He has this book citizens, why the key to fixing everything is all of us. It's about transforming ourselves from consumers into citizens. But isn't the problem that the marketing departments of large corporations, which are very clever, very well financed with a huge amount of muscularity, they've essentially collapsed the idea of the consumer and the citizen and made them one and tried to own them both simultaneously.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think particularly in the United States, we are encouraged to express our values through consumption and not through other means. Um, There's an idea that like, you know, if I buy pants that are made from organic materials, I'm doing something for the environment. Or if I buy fair trade coffee, I'm doing something for, for social justice, for economic equity. And I think like that's true as far as it goes, but what I'm doing is incredibly small. The benefit to myself is much greater than the measurable benefit to anybody else. And I think that I think that ultimately consumerism is a trap because it diverts us from things like direct action or political activism that are most likely to have a, a much greater impact.
0: If consumerism is a trap, is morality also a trap? Are you suggesting that they're the same trap? They seem to have become the same trap.
1: It's a good question. Um, And I think in uh, in the essay, I make a a potentially unsupported distinction between morality and ethics. Um, The idea that ethics is concerned with doing good and morality is concerned with being good. for example, uh, if I choose to eat a vegetarian diet because I disagree with like farming and the treatment of animals, that's an ethical decision and it will, to some extent, impact the lives of animals, right? I'm doing something. Whereas if I choose not to drink alcohol, that's a moral decision. Like I'm prioritizing my own purity and like the question of how it's improving the lives of others is much more difficult to answer. And I think uh, both can be good, but I think often like a focus on morality leads us to symbolic gestures uh, and symbolic choices rather than choices that are going to have real consequences, uh, which is what you get when you focus a little more narrowly on ethics.
0: Do you think that this preoccupation with morality, which you note, seems to dominate social media, you you talk about this, I don't know if it's your words, fully weaponized morality, um, or maybe it was someone on the FT. Um, Is this something that only the wealthy can afford?
1: This is like a classic problem in philosophy, right? Like it's much easier to be good when your material needs are met. Um, A rich man usually does not feel the need to steal or feels the impulse to steal in a totally different way from a person who might be stealing to get food or shelter. Um, and it's it's easy to mistake social media for the real world when you really, you're seeing like a very small slice of the population. You're, you're seeing people who have an internet connection and a certain amount of free time during the day, perhaps way too much free time during the day. Um, but I, I don't think that morality is a luxury of the rich. I think it's possible to live an ethical life and to like articulate your own values and live according to those values, even when you have very few material resources at your disposal. Um, and I think the flip side of being a person with substantial consumer income is that you wind up implicating yourself in a lot of systems that you, you may not necessarily support. Uh, I'm talking to you via an Apple computer And I try not to think about various allegations about their labor practices and and things of that nature. Um, And if I think about it too much, I enter a a state of paralysis.
0: You, as I said, you wrote this um, funny piece uh, for the New York Times magazine about how Trump ruined political comedy. Um, You're partly a comic writer. I know you're also interested in comedy itself as a discourse has this ubiquity of morality, has that also damaged comedy? Is It's increasingly hard to be funny these days. It seems as if our supposedly funny people, the John Stewarts of the world, the John Olivers, the Colbert's of the world, they're increasingly serious and moralizing.
1: I think that is a, in contemporary comedy. And I think that it is part of a a broader cultural referendum right now on what we want comedy to do. Um, we've seen other art forms like drama, for example, like television dramas or uh, feature films, like they have definitely taken a more pro social bent over the last 10 to 15 years. And I think there's a broad consensus there that those forms can be used to not just entertain or not just do like sort of intangible aesthetic things, but also improve society. And comedy has been exempt from that presumption for a long time, but I think it is catching up. I think comedy's status as a privileged form where it doesn't matter what you say, we only care about the aesthetic effect that we call funny is changing. Uh, And I think particularly younger consumers want to feel like the comedy they're consuming is having some sort of pro-social effect. Uh I'm a real.
0: Those young consumers don't seem to find that content particularly funny, do they? I don't know if it if the word comedy is the right one to associate with it. It's more edgy, accusing.
1: Yeah. Um Tina Fey is usually credited with coining the term clapter, uh, which is when an audience responds to a joke not by laughing but by applauding. Um and like she and it's a form—it's
0: uh, a form of moral approval when they applaud. It's not—they're they're not approving the um, the craft; they're they're approving the morality, aren't they?
1: Yeah, exactly. I think from a from a writer standpoint, it's definitely easier to say something morally laudable than it is to come up with a funny joke. Um, and so, I regard that as like a, a dangerous incentive. Um, and somebody like the, you know, a show like The Daily Show has to produce a huge quantity of material. And it is easier to position yourself as like a righteous political actor. Than it is to come up with 22 minutes of like solid comedy every day. Um, and I think they're trying to do both. But I think there has been a shift toward political activism in comedy, for better or for worse.
0: Is there or was there? um dan a golden age for american comedy are you nostalgic because you i know you're interested in in the history of american comedy and the idea of comedy was there a moment where you think we had the right balance between seriousness and humor and perhaps between the self as a human being and as a citizen
1: it's hard to say um i am I am biased toward the nineties as an era in comedy. Um, just because, uh, for one thing, I was an adolescent during that time. Um, and I think we all have like a fondness for whatever. You're no longer an adolescent? (laughs) Not chronologically. No. Um, I'm I'm still hanging on to a lot of bad habits, but, uh, but yeah, I think like the, uh, the sketch comedy that emerged from the nineties, um, with kind of the kids in the hall on one end and Mr. Show on the other end and a lot of like surreal or experimental stuff in between um, was really productive. And I think you also get a golden age of television comedy in the United States with the Simpsons and Seinfeld. Um, I'm not a huge friends fan, but I think a lot of people would put that in the same category. Um, but I also think like comedy is weird. Cause like, it has a much shorter shelf life than other forms. If you look at like the the hit comedies of the nineteen thirties, they are baffling to the modern viewer. Whereas like the literature of the nineteen thirties still makes a lot of sense to us. So I think comedy expires a lot faster than other forms. What are previous
0: uh, not previous, what are future generations gonna think looking back at our so-called comedy?
1: I think uh this is a uh, probably a dark fantasy. Um, I don't know how much of this is accurate. Well, I encourage dark uh,
0: fantasies, uh, Dan, okay. especially on this show. That's,
1: that's good. That's reassuring. Um, I think that the future generations are going to hold almost all of our moralizing in contempt because of our failure to address climate change, and mm-hmm. like that's a that's a very specific answer to a very general general question. And like, it's so specific that it probably isn't right. But I think that my son's grandchildren will look at us as an astonishingly selfish culture, uh, just because we, we knew it was happening and we didn't do anything about it. And we regarded ourselves as like pretty progressive and forward thinking in the meantime.
0: You've done some interesting writing also on your son's generation. You write this idea that who you are abides somehow outside of what you do is the defining fantasy of our culture and appeals particularly to children. You write about my son recently started a conversation with me by saying, you know how I'm a low empathy person. What is it about this generation that situates themselves or think which enables them or empowers them to think of themselves outside of themselves?
1: I think uh, I think two factors are at play here. Um, And one is just youth. Um, my son is 14 and like people around his age, I'm going to say from like 12 to 26, are still figuring out who they are. And from that perspective, especially a fixed identity is a really appealing notion that you are who you are, no matter what you do, you can't change it. Um, I think this is like a recurring fantasy for everyone in the modern world. And I think it's false. I do believe that I believe in radical freedom and radical responsibility that we that we can change what we do and who we are in profound ways from moment to moment. We just don't because living that way would be insane. <laughs> um, but I think the other factor in all this is the internet where we're exposed to a gigantic quantity of strangers, uh, one way or another through social media, through advertising, we're just being presented with a whole lot more people than our forebearers ever encountered. And I think the, the idea that people fit into types is a way to come to grips with that strangers. And I think for a lot of kids, it also becomes a way to come to grips with themselves.
0: What has the internet then done to language? You wrote an interesting piece, an amusing piece, again, in your sort of manner of combining humor and seriousness. The rise of the swear nerds uh, invented curses like fuck bonnet, douche nozzle and shit whistle, suggests something obnoxious about the new politics of civility, um, which, of course, fits very neatly into what we've been talking about. What's happening to language, Orwell, of course, reminded us that language is also always the first casualty of authoritarianism. There's something going on here in terms of the crisis of our language and of democracy and of the self and all bound up, of course, in the Internet. Maybe we can blame it all on Twitter again.
1: I do like to blame the Internet for stuff. Um, and I think I am uh, I am something of what David Foster Wallace described as a snoot um, a person who is, who takes like a prescriptivist approach to language, like some expressions are correct and some are not. And for that reason, I found the internet initially like hugely frustrating. Um, just because, you know, when I type out of habit, I'm going to capitalize the first word of the sentence. I'm going to use punctuation because if I get out of that habit, my work becomes much more difficult minute to minute. Uh, but on the internet, when you type like that, many people will perceive it as you being an asshole. And it's kind of like using whom in casual conversation, like you're you're sending signals that are more than just the content of your speech. You're sending information about yourself or how you think of yourself. Um, and so the internet has, has forced me, first of all, to come to terms with that aspect of communication. Like what you say is not all you're saying. Um, how you say it says a huge amount too. And Secondly, it's forced me to accept that, like, there isn't a correct speech or a correct typing. Um, And there are many situations where standard written English on the internet is inappropriate and it would be wrong to stick to it. So in some ways, like, I'm brokenhearted when I see people putting though at the end of every sentence or, like, latching on to, to, like, neologisms or, like, fad words, like, uh, spicy an adjective that irritates me right now um, or like the brief, uh, the brief reign of the slang term fleek, which was like dumb and nobody thought it was going to last. And yet a bunch of 35 year old writers took it up so that they could sound like teenagers. That stuff is, is heartbreaking to me. But I also think that like it's serving a function. It doesn't happen for no reason at all. And the reasons behind it are not necessarily bad. Like it, it may not be a deterioration of language so much as a divergence or an evolution of language.
0: We've talked a lot about morality and ethics, Dan, and you do in your writing as well. You haven't talked much about religion. America, of course, traditionally has always been a a deeply religious society. Is there something religious going on here, this transformation of physical American life into the network life of the internet? Has it acquired a religious tinge that we're always looking, as you suggest, for symbolism? It's a return to the, um, I don't know what the right word is. It's it's a return to the hysteria of the medieval world or the hysteria around language and symbolism.
1: That's an interesting idea. Um, I think there is there's an element of transcendence at work in both right like the uh the central the central proposition of christianity is like you're going to transcend your material body at the end you're going to transcend this temporal world and you're going to move to a real world that matters right and and that world is largely symbolic it's cast in terms of good and evil there's not a lot concrete about it um it is the the platonic world of forms right that's i think in many ways, like an acknowledged contributor to Christian thought. And the internet mirrors that in a way, parallels it insofar as if I go on Twitter, I'm also transcending my physical body. Like I've got my my little avatar there. um but I don't have to I don't have to confront my my weird horse teeth or like whatever aspect of my physical appearance I'm uncomfortable uncomfortable with. I can enact a version of myself. And like as a writer, that's thrilling because I can enact the part of myself that I like, like my, my bullshit ideas. Um, and I think, that, uh, I think that a lot of people have turned to the internet to do a version of themselves. And there is a parallel there to like the, the religious idea of transcending the temporal world.
0: Finally, Dan, what are we going to do about all this? I mean, you're clearly a serious guy, even if you pretend to be a comedian or serious uh, comedians are always serious. And we have this lacunae, I think, as we talked about, that the the American comics aren't very funny anymore. So there's a need for a a new generation of comics. Um, But what are we going to do about all this? Are we supposed to go back to a pre-transcendental world? Do we give up on the internet? Do we give up on language? Do we give up on morality?
1: Um, you know, my my brother is a, a smart man who takes these questions very seriously, and he does believe that. For the is most his part, his name Mel internet, Mel Brooks. <laughs> it's Mike. Uh, no. um, Mel is Mel is not related. I am so sorry to say, um, but no, my uh, my brother Mike uh, did recently suggest that uh, maybe the internet was a bad idea um and i'm not sure i'm not sure i would go that far um but i do think that we we have not learned to reckon with it in ways that make it a net plus in our lives um email is great Uh, i love distribution of music via the internet that's that's incredible like as a as an old punk that was the the fantasy that we always had right that we would transcend the need for major labels and like We've done that in many ways, even if the major labels are still around. Um, But I also think there are like obvious problems. The disinformation crisis, however you want to construe it, is a big problem. The way people behave on social media is a big problem. And the fact that my screen time tells me every week that I'm spending between three and four hours a day looking at my phone is a huge problem. Like I I should be reading books. I should be doing push-ups. I should be telling my wife she's pretty, like doing doing anything but looking at my phone. And I, I do think those are like changes that have a giant effect on society and have a giant effect on the individual. And I don't think we can put the genie back in the bottle, but I do think that we as individuals need to become more self-disciplined and more circumspect than we've ever been. And I'm not sure we're going to pull it off in my lifetime.
0: Dan, we should indeed be becoming more disciplined. And one way, as you suggested, we can do that is by reading books. You don't have a book out, although I know you will have one and you'll have to come back on the show when you have it to talk about it. What have you been reading? Books or articles, anything that is making you wiser?
1: I am. I was looking forward to this question because I very recently read uh, My Phantoms by Gwendolyn Riley. Uh, I believe she's Irish. Um, It's a short novel. It is essentially a character study. It's about a woman who has a vexed, if not totally broken relationship with her parents and her her father dies and her, she tries to repair her relationship with her mother and doesn't quite. Um, And despite this very bleak description I've given, it is very funny. And it is also an incredible work of characterization through action. The characters are so rich and she does it almost entirely via things that they do rather than things the narrator tells you about them. Um, I think it's a, a huge artistic accomplishment and it's, I've described it as being in higher resolution than any book I've read in years.
0: Just repeat it again, the, the title and the author.
1: Uh, My Phantoms by Gwendolyn Riley, R-I-L-E-Y.
0: Well, it's nice, uh, Dan. I think they're still in America out there, or still Americans. You're broadcasting from the city of Missoula um, in Montana. Keep doing what you're doing, because I think we need original, unusual voices like you that certainly can't be categorized. Finally, I'm asking everybody uh, who comes on the show this, uh, Dan, as as, as as regular viewers know, uh, who's in charge of the world in April 2022, Dan Brooks?
1: Baby boomers. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to say it, but they control a huge portion of the material wealth. Uh, they vote more than any other group. Uh, they've got Fox News, an entire network that is dedicated to to appealing to them, um, and they control almost all the leadership in the Democratic Party of the United States. I think we are we are at near peak gerontocracy right now, um, and it's going to be another ten or fifteen, years, and then something crazy will happen.
0: And on top of that, they are the moral generation, or at least the generation of morality, aren't they, the baby boomers?
1: So they regard themselves. Um, <laughs> I have. I have some critiques, but yeah, I do think that they are, uh, they're possessive of moral clarity, if not moral precision.
0: Yeah. That doesn't mean that they're not hipo- hip- hip- hypocrites, but uh, certainly they believe in their own morality and much more than most generations.
1: They do. And like some amazing things happened in United States history during their lifetime. I think they, I think they have a t- tendency to take credit for things that they saw But I I do think like the last 60 or 70 years have been a time of great progress in terms of how good the United States and the rest of the world is. I just think we're, we're also capable of backsliding.